0: Uh, welcome to the world building seminar. A quick bit of housekeeping. Uh, if you've got mobile phones, can you put them on silent or turn them off, please, just so they're not interrupting? Should you need the lavatoire, it is a hard right, just out of this door, uh, for in the event of a fire, there is not a fire drill it's planned, use that machine. door as quickly as you can, in an it's orderly fashion. Uh, just follow me. Uh, it it. Cheers, yeah. Phil. And we are gonna be recording the whole session, uh, so we are gonna have a QA and a section. If you don't want to be on the recording, just wait till the end when we stop recording, and then you can ask your question, um, but, all this is going to be recorded. Uh, and with no further ado, you ready to start? Good, good. Um, so my name's Tom. Uh, I'm from the Unlucky Frog Gaming Podcast. Uh, I have the esteemed privilege of interviewing these chaps on your behalf, and chapette. <laughs> <laughs> Uh Basically, we've got a couple of questions that have been submitted that we're going to open up with. Am I on? And then um, you guys can ask your own questions as well. Um, so first things first. let let's find out who we're talking to. So starting at this end, if you'd like to introduce yourself.
1: Uh, So I'm Matthew Dawkins. I am a developer of games for Onyx Path Publishing and a writer for companies such as White Wolf Modiphius, Green Ronin, Chaosium, among others. I worked on Vampire the Masquerade 5th edition and Call of Cthulhu and various other games quite extensively.
2: Yeah. Well, my name is uh, Clara and I am a freelance RPG writer. I work for Midifius. I work for Onyx Path Publishing. I've worked for Helmgast, and I've worked for Maple Leaf Games. So I've written quite a few things: Vampire, Call of Cthulhu, all kinds of exciting things. Yeah.
3: I'm Ben Graybeaton. I'm current line manager for Infinity over at Midifius. I've also been involved in Conan, Mutant Chronicles, pretty much anything with 2d20 stamped on the side.
4: <laughs> I'm Bill Heron. Um, I'm a writer, proofreader. Index of Wales. I know most of Modifius products now. Um, currently working on Infinity and Acton Cthulhu. Um, worked on nearly all the Music Chronicles line and some bits of Star Trek, but not nothing that really, or note no, within note. A couple of other minor freelance po- products, and that's, that's me, uh, freelance as well. so. Uh,
5: Kevin Young, uh, founder of Inspiring Games. We have a game called Legends and Old with a quite an extensive world in it called Mornadar, Mornadar which we spent quite a lot of time on and has various homages to Scotland and other
0: <laughs> cultures within it, I would say. Excellent, thank you very much. So the first question we had submitted, uh, this is quite a big open one, so go mad. Um, so what was the biggest inspiration or the most memorable inspiration for a setting that you have worked on? What was your biggest or most memorable inspiration for a setting you've worked on? It's an open one.
1: Mm, okay. Um, I suppose with uh, games like Vampire the Masquerade, various World of Darkness games, my biggest inspiration um, it comes from literature, mostly the works of uh, the author J.G. Ballard. Uh, who is uh, an excellent author of dystopia, sci-fi uh, novels you may have heard of, like High Rise, Crash, uh, Concrete Island. He has an excellent way of making the world around the characters completely alien, and they it steadily makes the protagonists incredibly alien as well. It, they're very hard to relate to. And so I kind of transfer that into my work on World of Darkness games, because your characters become increasingly far, farther removed from being human or moral uh, as the game goes on, and um, as you explore the universe of games like Vampire: The Masquerade, you find things further and further away from humanity. So that's probably my biggest influencer.
0: Excellent. Anyone else?
3: In the past, in life, I was an academic. And a lot of my influence actually comes from my studies of uh, the politics of the 1980s. Okay. So no matter what you think you've read, it was worse. (laughs) (laughs) And the simple fact that things can get so out of hand so quickly always makes me want to bring that element to games.
0: Is that like UK politics or further afield?
3: Uh, Well, I was born in the UK, but I lived in New Zealand most of my life. Okay. So most of it is Antipodean.
0: Excellent.
5: Anyone else? I wasn't an academic, to be clear, Uh, but (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, for me, certainly the studies from my first degree, which is in ancient history, uh, has a massive impact on the world that we're building. So the studies of the campaigns of Alexander the Great, or what was happening in Macedonia, Persia, Egypt, uh, even Iron Age Britain, all the time these things come through, and even today looking at archaeology in Scarabry and recent finds in Wales has a massive impact on the game that we're making. So
0: a lot of the Im- inspiration comes from real world subject matter then, definitely, cool.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that because I'm actually, I'm a nurse too, I'm an ins- intensive care nurse. And um, if you go a little away from academics, we can also take a lot of inspiration from the hands-on things we do in life. And uh, I especially took a lot of inspiration from my nursing when I write horror, because it is, a r- working at a hospital an intensive care unit is Horrible sometimes from a social perspective from a body horror perspective. So that's something that really taught me how to uh, to um, Depict that in what I write so that's something you can do with almost every type of job I believe it's it is really just soaking everything up Um, And I will say especially human experiences uh, experiencing real fear real loss real um, anger is something I've really taken from my nursing job and applied to my writing, yeah.
0: Anything else, are we happy with that? Cool. So the next one we've got is how do you keep track when you're developing a setting? So what kind of resources do you use to sort of track? Is it online, is it digital, is it paper? What's your kind of process for that?
4: I think for me it's probably Scrivener at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things i found is, as Kev can tell you, is things like wikis, your own personal wiki. Um, Skimmer is great for assembling notes and bits and pieces. I mean, I have a note, several notebooks of ideas, I've also got several uh, notebooks now of research of things I've been doing for Act of Cthulhu and binders full of original ideas. But I think the easiest way, without going down the whole yarn and uh, posting notes everywhere, that's probably the easiest way to do it. That's probably the easiest way to describe script. It's just way of uh, keeping all your bits and pieces together as a bit of software. Yeah. But it's a very difficult learning curve, which I'm still learning. So, but for me, that's the best way I find of keeping track of all these bits and pieces.
1: Yeah, I still go for the notes and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the conspiracy map on the wall. <laughs> Um, but no, other than that, spreadsheets, Google Sheets, uh, I mean, it's very boring, uh, but it's a very effective way of creating a simple database of characters, locations, events that have happened. Um, if Certainly, Scrivener's wikis are brilliant if, um, if you have the time to set them up or the resources to set them up. But otherwise, yeah, I think a decent spreadsheet is a
0: good way of navigating a world that you're building. I think there is sort of that Cliche image in there of the wall just covered with the string connecting it and everything. I think that's, that's what this person's going for with yeah. the question. <laughs> I
5: have an interesting one on that. That we're definitely in the spreadsheet territory, it's, as Bill will know, poor guy, uh, and using Dropbox to share with myself and the other half of Inspiring Games, Hugh. Uh, but what we have done to save a bit of sanity is is apply a new product we're just going through it just now actually which anybody can buy off the shelf Uh, i think you can actually get it free with a limited license called world anvil and that is a very good way of taking what you've got from all those spreadsheets and so forth and turning it into something that you and indeed other people around the world can access easily in a nice graphical format so that product is called world anvil we found it by accident and it is really helping us get on top of things awesome
3: I tend to use a six spreadsheet rule. Which is if I need more than six tabs on a spreadsheet, then it's time to actually just write it down and have it written in one place. (laughs) It's just gotten too complicated for me at that point. I have post-it notes, I have notepads, I have it typed up (laughs) in different ways, and often they're the same things, written in different formats. But uh, yeah, if if you need to get really in depth with something, you should probably have published that by now. (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome, uh okay. Uh, the next one we've got is how important is the visual and the artistic component to your world building process? Um, so
1: with a lot of the uh, it, in fact, well, from I guess the reverse perspective, it's one of the most rewarding things as a writer to see how an artist turns your words into art. Uh, so, yeah, you might write 20,000 words of a chapter, and uh, hopefully a chapter won't be longer than that. And uh, then you turn it over to editing and layout and art, and then you see what they come up with based on either your very specific art directions or just your text alone. And that's incredibly inspiring for subsequent projects. That's what I've found, I guess, going through uh, the journey of being a a freelance writer it's when you realize how your words can shape art the art then goes on to shape your words because you get to see how people are picturing the things you're writing down
0: kind of circular almost
1: exactly yeah Uh, and it really that really depends on the artist some people need incredibly exacting notes some people want creative freedom there's risks on both sides Mm -hmm. because you can seem like you're being too controlling as a writer or a developer or you can be, um, I guess, opening it up to disaster <laughs> um, because, you, you know, artists can be creatively explosive, if you like. It's very <laughs> diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, art is in, an incredible inspiration, visual art.
2: Yeah, and if you look at it at a from a, in, an immersive perspective, uh, just... Being able to, to paint a picture with your writing is so important in world building, because what you essentially is y- what you're trying to do is you're trying to put the writer, or the reader or the player in this world. So use all of your senses when you write and build the world. How does it physically feel to be in here? How does it smell? How does it sound? Um, because that's the only way you can really immerse the player in what you're doing. It, it's how we, it's how we sense the world around us. It's our senses. So, so really go into detail. You can go into in almost enough detail um, with your world. I'm a big uh, Tolkien fan. Uh, <laughs> he likes to describe every single uh, branch and every single leaf on that branch. And I really, I really like that. I, it it really is something that can give your players a more immersive experience. So I would recommend that for anyone who builds a world.
3: I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a bit of a heretic on this one. Ooh. I hate art. <laughs> it's not that I hate art, it's that sometimes I can't see it. Okay. Uh, I have very strange colour distinction in my eyes, so certain shades just don't register at all. So a lot of the time I actually have to trust other people. Okay. So I say to other people on my team, does this look good or not? Yeah. And I just wanna know if you know, three people come back to me. If two of them say, yes, that looks good, and it'll pass over the IP holder, then generally I'll just have to go with it. Okay. Because I don't know what you guys are seeing sometimes.
0: Do you think that diminishes sort of how much of an impact the art has on your influence then?
3: It doesn't really impact me a lot. Yeah. Okay. I don't really look at it very much. Okay. I, I will look at it, and sometimes I'll enjoy it. But uh, like I said, I'll be the heretic on this one.
4: I think with the Mutant Chronicles, for example, it's more a, symbi- a symbiotic relationship. Um, we're talking about a punk universe, we're talking about giant shoulder pads, everything's turned up to 11, big guns and bad attitudes. The Mutant Chronicles has got the, one of the iconic characters, Mitch Hunter, kicking a space Nazi zombie in the face. And that's pretty much defines the entire Mutant Chronicles universe to a certain extent, I think.
3: But it had to be limited to a 12-plus rating. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
5: yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think... I would echo everything that the guys have said. The one thing on a particular game that we make is it's is very much an art-consuming machines. A lot of other games are too, but basically the cards all have a piece of art on them, so that you have to order a lot of art. And most of the stuff c- comes through in the phone every couple of days when you see it. Uh, it changes your world, I agree. Something can come in and you go, wow, I never even thought of that, which is pretty amazing. So um, the interesting point was on, on, on art direction. For me, it depends... Uh, particularly what I'm trying to achieve on a given piece. Um, so if I have a, a very specific part of the world that I want to describe and I need it in there, I will be quite tight with it. But I know that the artists love it when I go the other day and I go, fill your boots, just make it cool. And they come back with a question mark and go, yeah, seriously, what is it you want? I mean, I'm seriously, <laughs> fill your boots. And like the guy was just in heaven. And then he came back and he said, is that okay? And meanwhile, I'm picking my jaw off the floor because it was so nice, you know.
1: Uh, and s- sometimes... Sometimes you have to let the artists have creative freedom because not every single developer or writer is good at explaining art. And whether it is because they can't picture it in their mind or whether they can't see it as well as someone else might. Um, For instance, if I'm asked to describe a map or even sketch out a map for artists to then elaborate for a published book... I'm awful because I am just a crap map maker (laughs) I might be able to describe how someone's face looks so if we need a portrait of a villain in a piece I can do that but doing a map of a dungeon or a mansion or something like that I'm best off just finding genuine floor plans from something online saying make it like that because I have no mind for
0: architecture I guess make it like that but legally distinct (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) name name the building something else alright awesome uh so the next one we've got is for those of you that have worked on sort of uh, pre-existing IPs. Um, so Vampire being a good example, things like that. How do you feel uh, about adding to those IPs? How do you feel about the content that you're adding to an existing IP? Uh, and how do you kind of deal with that emotionally? It's probably not the right word, but kind of, you know, it's quite a weight to deal with something that someone else has created and add on to it. How does that kind of work for yourselves?
2: Yeah, I, I definitely have. Uh, I've written I've Chicago by Night, which is a big supplement to uh, V5, Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. And for those of you who know Vampire, uh, you know there are different clans, and these clans represent different things. So. I had the job, the opportunity to write about Clan La Sombra, uh, and a big major change in this clan, and I know there are lots and lots and lots of fans of Clan La Sombra specifically, so I felt intimidated. I was scared, like what if I fuck this up? What What if I write something everyone is going to hate and is going to have my name on it? But I also think that that fear or that respect for what I was writing, really made the project that much better. And it, it gave me a, a sense of, okay, I really have to do a, a hell of a good job on this project because there are so many people out there that are that's going to be super upset if I do a bad job. So um, it's intimidating, I would say. It's scary, it, but it's also a great opportunity to actually do something you've always wanted to do with this big thing in the game and to put your own fingerprint on it without stepping on too many toes along the way.
1: Yeah, the um, so I've worked on Vampire pretty much since I got into writing RPGs and uh, I had been playing and running Vampire for many years. I've been making videos about Vampire, The Gentleman's Guide to Vampires and gaming on YouTube and so I've been immersed in that world for over a decade and probably longer than that And so I've kind of had two seminal works from my perspective, which was Beckett's Jihad Diary, which was for the 20th anniversary edition of Vampire, which was like the big dump of lore, all the meta plot, everything. Everything I'd ever picked up through reading Vampire, playing it for years and years and years, went into this one book. And then there was V5, which is the new edition, and I'm working on the core book. And all of a sudden, I've got to come up with new ideas. Everything I was doing for 20th Anniversary was essentially a celebration and an expansion of an existing IP. But V5, we had the direction from on high to make this the new edition of Vampire. It needs to feel like a revolution in Vampire the Masquerade. And again, there's a certain amount of intimidation. There's a lot of weight put on you at that point because a game like Vampire has thousands, tens of thousands, maybe more fans around the world and all of a sudden they're all going to be reading your work and judging it <laughs> so you have a lot of responsibility to deliver something that, is, that satisfies the existing fan base but can still draw in new fans and that's a very fine line to walk as anyone who's worked on a new edition of a game <laughs> can ever say uh,
3: Anyone else? Well Pretty much everything I've worked on has had an IP holder somewhere in the background. Uh, <laughs> some of them have been very light touch, some a lot less. So when I've been working on different IPs, it's, it really come down to how much freedom you have with that IP holder. Uh, when we were working on Mutant Chronicles where we basically had no restrictions on what we could do. You just run for your life. We got to fill in all <laughs> the gaps that were missing from the second edition. You know. Entire continents of Earth had never been considered. You know. Where did China go in second edition? It's just missing. <laughs> so We got to fill in all these lovely little gaps that had been done because when the game was written, it was just trying to get out what it could and tell the story it wanted to tell. But we were able to pick up new and interesting things and bring them forward. And so a lot of that was real fun, mm-hmm. but then you had to uh, deal with the fan base who were a bit confused about why these things hadn't been spoken about before. Mm. And then, like you say, you're trying to bring people in as much as you're trying to appeal to the old fans. So it's a
0: bit of a balancing act, I imagine, trying yeah. to keep yeah. yeah. both parties.
1: And it's impossible. <laughs> uh, I mean, a, a, no, a established fans, uh, for better or worse, have what they like because they've been playing it for years you're never going to appeal to every established fan because they have their own vision of the game, which Mm. goes back to that entire, um, well, what we were saying before. Uh, And they've
3: probably got a library of hit canon they are bringing to it as well.
1: Exactly. So some people will be disappointed, some people will be thrilled. You've just got to hope there'll be at least one thing in your book that appeals to them.
0: Awesome. That was... Good. Okay. Uh, Uh, I'd
1: I'd like to add something, because I'm incessant. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Save me asking another question. But no, it's on the subject of um, dealing with IPs owned by other people. So, for instance, I've worked for Green Ronin. Green Ronin um, published the Song of Ice and Fire RPG. And on the uh, other hand of IP restriction, as you can imagine with the vast popularity of the Game of Thrones TV show and the novel series... George R.R. Martin himself has an incredibly tight grip over what you can write in RPG sourcebooks related to that setting. He personally reads every single RPG sourcebook, makes annotations on everything written by these writers who feel terrified of what they write because (laughs) they're going to write something... They'll send it off. He'll send it back and say, no, 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 but won't necessarily tell you what you need to write because he doesn't want to spoil any upcoming books. So you're constantly throwing ideas into the void, hoping one of them sticks. And this is why, often, when you've got IPs like A Song of Ice and Fire, it takes so long for books to come out because you are trying to balance the creative desires of the owner with your own and with fan expectations. So that's a whole other element that complicates world building. But I when think that's why he's not yes done the next book. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: when you see a yes from that guy, you know you've nailed it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Uh, so this is a bit of a, a wild card question, um, and it's the last one I'm going to ask before we move over to the audience. So if you could expand on any existing setting or world that you haven't expanded on, which would it be, and what would you like to add to it? If you had your choice of any setting to work on and add to,
4: for me probably Babylon Five. Okay. <laughs> cool. Well, I think that, I think that's my holy grail. I'd love to be able to work on, on a Babylon de- decent non D twenty Babylon Five mm-hmm. uh, RPG.
0: Nice. I like it. <laughs>
4: that's a tough qu-
5: tough question. Um, a fan-made game, to be clear. We do not own the IP for no, this. No, it's not. There's yeah, no yeah. IP. You've just No, but, but we made it, which gives you an idea of how much we love it. I'd love to do a game based in the Tron universe, yeah, which we okay. made, but we do not have the IP for it, okay? <laughs> I, I'll say it again. We do not have the
0: IP for it. <laughs> On the record.
3: If I had my drivers, Dr. McNinja. <laughs>
2: Well, referring back to me saying I'm a Tolkien fan, well, Middle-Earth would probably be something I would love to work on and expand.
1: Awesome. Um, Probably the Planescape setting for Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, I am sure at some point we'll see it in 5th edition, or we'll be waiting until 6th edition. (laughs) Uh, uh, It's uh, bewildering to me why it's never been brought back, Uh, but I think Planescape is one of the most inspiring, innovative settings for the... Most popular fantasy RPG going, and it's just amazingly expansive. So, being able to work on that, being able to tailor the planes and the city of doors, all
0: of that would be wonderful. Um, I do, I do love the planescape myself. That's a good call. Uh, all right, we're going to open up to you guys. Um, so, if you've got a question, stick your hand in the air and I'll shout out. Uh, hopefully we've got more than one. <laughs> Start with yourself then.
3: Uh, yeah, well,
1: first I'd say big fan of the song the fans, so I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with that. Awesome. But, um, I hope you like them in the Camarilla. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just going to ask about, um, like, how at what, what, what point does geography come into it? Do you have, if you're doing a settling uh, thing, so you have you a geography sort of big sort of out first, and you think, I want them to fit into that, or you have an idea for, both, like, a culture or... A, so whatever think uh, uh, thing, am uh, just like that—that that sort of implies a certain
5: geography that goes with it. I know that the sort of fantasy um, setting, one planet, so lots of different geography all come mm-hmm. together. Saga wants each planet its own little, mm-hmm. sort of geography thing. But uh, just what, what stage do you, do you think you consider
0: geography?
2: Um. So if you're talking about creating an entirely new world, like something that doesn't exist, um. I think yeah, that's, that's a good question because I don't nec- I don't think from my perspective, I don't necessarily think geography in as the first thing. I often have a, an idea for culture or a certain type of person even and I build from that and I expand from that. But that again is because I have a lot of person experience. like I have a lot of experience with humans. So if you have a lot of experience with or find geography interesting, I can imagine that your starting point would probably be uh, a mountain, or a lake, or a city, or a a and a certain type of infrastructure. It, it it really depends on what you find interesting in building a world and what experience you have as a person.
1: Yeah, the um, I mean Ed Greenwood, very well known for designing the Forgotten Realms. He um started the Forgotten Realms with the Dale Lands so Shadowdale, everyone, know, everyone who knows Forgotten Realms knows Shadowdale and the Dale Lands is just a very merry old England region of the Forgotten Realms and the reason he started there was because it was very easy to write about a rural almost Tolkien-esque culture where occasionally he'd have the Zentarim coming in, stealing mines and doing all this other stuff and because he was running it for his home group occasionally they wanted to leave the lands, so that's what compelled him to start writing areas outside of the Lands and so he was able to come up with lots of different foreign cultures. Now, that's, so that's what I'm trying to do with World of Darkness for 5th edition now, because what happened in near the end of the 3rd edition, as it's now called the Revised Edition, was pretty much every city was a carbon copy of each other. If it was a Camarilla city, it had a prince, it had Primogen, a, just, um, a sheriff and the rest. And a Sabbat city had an archbishop and the Catholic version. Um, now, with 5th edition, we have that archetypal city with Chicago by night. We have a prince with some primogen, a sheriff, some harpies. But then you've got Milwaukee, which is introduced in an upcoming book called Let the Streets Run Red, which ha- has a prince, but it also has a council of three uh, judges. And there's no sheriff. There's also a pack that roves around responsible for um, grabbing up anyone who breaks the law. Then you've got Indianapolis, which is a, uh, led by the ministry, the rebrand of the followers of Set. And that is almost like an evangelical commune of a vampire city. So the idea is to make the world of darkness a more diverse place politically and philosophically because why wouldn't it be if you've had vampires that exist for thousands of years they're they're going to imprint their own uh signature on a location
3: i think geography is an interesting choice um geography wouldn't be my approach to things uh, because it's not something that really inspires me but then i think if it inspires you it should be where you go um i'm more inspired of ideas of uh, political control and uh constructs of power so where you would be looking maybe at the geography of a place i'd be looking at how the towns connected to the villages you know, whether there was a patrol of knights that had to visit down there and hence there'd be a road i'd be looking at the the structure of power but that's my position and i'm not recommending that for anyone else <laughs>
4: <laughs> for me i mean not just as, as a gm and generally as more than alright so geography is usually one of the first places I start when I'm actually will building but it's not necessarily if I have a small setting um, I would quote something like the Lost Mines of Fandelva for example someone said that in a tiny small area like we talked about with Shadowdale earlier it, you start off small and then you can add bits and pieces to that um, globally when you look at a world building setting or something like that um, it, yeah geography is usually the first place you start it's a rock you add water Hmm. Blah blah blah, tidal events, etc. etc. You colour in the extra bits and pieces. I mean that's literally is what world building is. Um, but on a smaller scale, just a region, just you just you fill in the blanks. You go out. I mean I think anyone that's ever been a GM here has always had those big bits on the map where yeah yeah there's a. Some generic culture here or something here or generic area here mountains here that somehow block the past I mean that's been going on for about thirty forty years I think mm. really there's always been that whole thing where we have uh, impassable mountains or whatever I mean I can remember being like five or six years old creating random treasure maps as a kid with always hazards and things like that uh, still doing it thirty years later <laughs>
5: <laughs> uh, so I think I think geography is important uh, but it's not my it's not my photo or my skill sets the way uh, that we approached it uh, me being history buff was to start in 10,000 BC and map all of the cool cultures across the world that we wanted to include in some form or another between 10,000 BC and one thousand AD and did a coming back to the point about a spreadsheet a very big spreadsheet on that front and then obviously then put across the, the fantasy influences that we wanted into it and, and the original ideas we had to come up with the world but at that point coming back to the original question we then hired a professional cartographer who makes maps of the real world for a living but is also a gamer so it's his mana from heaven (laughs) to actually you know get paid to make really cool maps um you're welcome come and look at them later if you want but uh that made a massive difference for us doing it because suddenly you go where's that bit of the world again it's like no that's it it's built the coast is now there you can't move it anymore and it becomes canon so for me really really important but because I'm not a geography expert, I needed somebody to come in and challenge it and say, no, there's a central mountain spine there. You're the Kev, you're saying that those are three times the height of Mount Everest. That's cool, but that means you've got rain on one side and it's dry on the other, so shift the desert, pal. That kind of thing. <laughs> really yeah, th- there's definitely a benefit to having someone with a cartographical
1: mind uh, when it comes to making your world, because uh, Rockogan The Legend of the Five Rings, this is an infamous story, um, from my guess about the third edition of the game that was a world that was designed by committee in a way because it was designed by people who won card game tournaments and so you could have influence over what was going on in this part of the world, which, what clan invaded which part and so on mm-hmm. and because it was designed by committee Parts of the world were designed over here, parts of the world were designed over there, and ended up with a river that famously ended up running uphill. (laughs) Um, And just geography that made no sense. It didn't even make sense in the setting. It was just hand-waved, which the fifth edition has thankfully done a lot to fix. But, uh, yeah, you do need someone who has a... who has both the historical perspective mm-hmm. because why would people live here is it because there's fresh water is it because there's some raw material there that is inaccessible anywhere else and um, how hard is it to live there you know because that will tell you something about the people that live there and continue to live there if it's uh, constantly attacked if there's monsters if there's natural uh, environmental hazards that kind of thing
5: useful tip for people that are out there you, you may have it already but um i actually bought a book how to draw fantasy maps it's about 17 pounds off amazon and it's it's brilliant not because your your maps might look slightly better than a scribble but it does teach you stuff that you go ah like oh the mount the stream has to run down the mountain so if you build a mountain the river can't run back on itself otherwise you wouldn't believe the number of maps out there that have got seven bores when you go up and down and it becomes a bit unrealistic so if you're going for realism then that's a great book to try it's something Clara and I were actually talking about I think just yesterday
1: with the Elder Scrolls games so I have a big problem with um, the geography in games like Elder Scrolls and the early Final Fantasies I know they're video games maybe it shouldn't matter but I hate the idea of a city surrounded by castle ruins for miles with no one inhabiting a single one of them except monsters because what what do these people in the city do are they literally just going from that door to that door all day i know it's ai i know but i i need to be able to suspend my disbelief and you were saying skyrim is a lot better at that but yeah, when I look at a world, it needs to make some degree of sense. And geography does play a big part of that because if the entire world is barren except for your city in the middle, I think that's A-State, which is an old RPG. That's fine if it is A-State, but if it isn't, it's
0: nonsense. <laughs> Excellent. Good question. Um, funny you should mention geography. Actually, I, had a, I had a D&D campaign and I had a sea coast at the top and my party were coming along and there was a river running south. And one was like, oh, there must be a mountain between here and there. And I was like... What's well, <laughs> that? <laughs> exactly that situation. Uh, next question.
4: Hi, um, I've got a
3: question about cultures. Um, whether you're writing a source book for, say, a, a game based in the real world like Vampire, or you're kind of creating your own culture for a fantasy game, um, you're going to potentially take um, hints and things from cultures that exist in the real world. How do you guys find um, trying to explain... Um, certain cultures in the real world that maybe you don't have first-hand experience of? Because I imagine there might be a bit of a fine line between what sounds good and what could potentially offend someone.
1: Yeah, you do it with a lot more sensitivity now than you used to, I think, is uh, one answer.
3: Ask. That's generally the best way, you ask. When we did the Star Trek uh, first book, we had an idea that we would have a Hindi lady on the front wearing the classic Star Trek mini skirt, And um, I forget what it's called, the marking. Um, As soon as I heard that, I thought this could be a disaster because we don't know what the sensitivity is. So I got on the phone to make sure that and I asked him to ask his mum (laughs) and he did. And she responded with, why are you waking me up in the middle of the night? (laughs) (laughs) Because he phoned her directly rather than waiting for morning. But she was fine with it. She asked some of her friends, they were fine with it. Generally, nobody cared because we'd asked. Because we'd taken that simple thing of saying, hey, um, is this gonna annoy you? And veered away from it, it helped a lot.
2: Yeah, right. um, I, it's a very good question because I'm, I'm a firm believer of you can't really know what a culture entails before you've actually lived in it and been a part of it but we can't possibly we can't do that because we write about all kinds of places around the world i've done that i wrote written about africa i've never been there um so i have to tread carefully i have to first of all i have to study the culture as much as i possibly can that won't give me the same as if i live in africa for two months or a year or even a week um but it's the only chance i have as a writer with Low uh, funds to actually experience the world or, or study what I what I what I can. So basically, study all you can and maybe see if you can find someone who's actually from the part you're writing from. So sometimes I go on Reddit and I go on the subreddit for that city or that area and say, "Hey, I'm writing something. I can't tell you what it is, but I really need to know. How is it for you? Can I interview? You? Can I can I get some you know inputs from you?" Um, so I was writing about Detroit uh, for one of my books for uh, and I don't know anything about Detroit. I'm from Denmark. I I, I couldn't know less. Um, so I coincidentally I was staying in Edinburgh at that time, and I was living beside someone from Detroit. So I asked them, can I can I ask you some questions about Detroit? And it was a mom and her daughter. So I got the perspective from a mom who hated living in Detroit because she thought it was dangerous for her daughter and a daughter who loved it because she was diving into all the subcultures so it, it was great for me as a writer I really got a sense of okay what is the youth culture in this city what is the culture for, for people who are older uh, it, was, it was great so, so if you do find yourself in a situation where you are writing about a pre-existing culture just do your homework and seek out people who live there
5: I would echo that research and asking as well, um, a cogent example from our world, Uh, we decided in Mornadar to make the gnomes the kick-ass race, because they're gnomes, and I like gnomes, (laughs) so we called them the Nimshka, and they are basically a massive influence from the Alexander the Great Army, so they've got big sarissas, and they ride on massive fantasy waragers, warbadgers, etc., etc., because it's cool, gnomes on badgers, Um, but... Obviously, having studied Greek and Greek history helped, but I made sure that I asked lots of people I knew who were Greek and said, look, is this actually, you know, we're taking away real-world history and basically putting you guys on badgers and making you <laughs> kick-ass? Is that okay? And they looked at it, and they were like, that's amazing, because you're still spreading the word of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the cradle of civilization, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, I wanted to ask first, so
0: agreed. Excellent. Thank you very much. Any more questions? Claire.
1: So, well, really, it depends on how long a deadline (laughs) we're given. (laughs) Um, I mean, if we could research for months, we would. Um, That's not always a possibility. Uh, So I've I've worked on several historical RPGs. I know you have as well. And uh, my first ever assignment, actually, was in a book called Sothis Ascends. This was my first ever paid writing gig. It was for a role-playing game called Mummy. And I had to write about the rise of Islam And um, or the era spanning the rise of Islam, so middle of the 6th century, and um, I knew very little about that when I first started. So I worked in the library. I did it the old-fashioned way, and for the first month of my assignment, I was making notes, like I was studying for an exam, or studying to write coursework, or whatever, and it was fun because I was learning, and because generally learning about history is interesting uh, if you expose yourself to an array of uh, mediums. So I was watching documentaries, I was reading books, I was trying to speak to people who knew a little about it or lived it. Well, not lived the rise of Islam, that would be... I don't know any actual vampires. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the the fact that I spent that month doing research and really taking fastidious notes... Uh, and then making those notes into something legible, cut down the time required to write afterwards. Because that kind of era has so many myths as well as facts related to it. You can just pull those out, you can expand on them, you can subvert them slightly. So in a way, as long as you don't go too far, the more research you do, the easier the writing becomes, which should be the objective.
2: Yeah, and I'll say that when I have a writing gig, when I write a game, I I do exactly the same thing. I was actually thinking library, library, library in my head because you are putting yourself in an environment. And I'm one of those persons like my mind goes everywhere. And when I'm writing, I can't keep focus. So I have to force myself into an environment where I can actually focus. So going into a library, you have an unlimited amount almost of knowledge you can just grab from the shelves while you're sitting there. You don't have to carry books home. Practically, it's perfect. But I will also say, being a full-time nurse on the side, I don't always have the time to do that with my own games. I just don't have all the time in the world. And I think it's something that we need to be realistic because most people don't do this professionally. So when I run a game for friends, um, I would sometimes just watch a documentary about the place. It, it, it generally can give you a good base knowledge of something and even some like good pointers or plot hooks you can use in your own game. Um, so, yeah.
3: If it's your own game, cheat. <laughs> <laughs> Utterly cheat. If you get it wrong, one of your players tells you you got it wrong, say to them, I know, but cut me some slack. <laughs> and they usually should. If, however, you're doing it for a big project and you want to get it absolutely accurate, cheat. <laughs> Go and speak to an academic at a university who does that for their living. They don't talk to human beings usually. So when someone shows an interest, they're like, oh yes, let me tell you everything. And they'll give you the right books to read. And rather than read ten books to get three books of information, you read three books.
4: I mean, for on Cthulhu, I personally have been doing quite a bit of research for the Forest of Year campaign, which is really set in about six weeks of 1944, where... At the Battle of the Bulge, and I'm reading all the stuff about the troop movements or anything, and everything two weeks leading up to that. And the process of which, I've learned, and this might turn a few people's stomachs, things like during the really cold uh, states where they couldn't find any food, the troops were shooting Venice, shooting deer for venison, pheasants for birds, but they stopped shooting the pigs, the wild boar in the forests. No one understood why until they figured until they found out that the, the troops were seeing. The wild boar actually rooting in the bodies of the dead and eating their entrails, which mm. turned them all pretty much against pork overnight. As a result, <laughs> um, I've also been <laughs> researching stuff like trench foot and things like that, because this is what you do when you're writing these things. Mm. This is how could, I'm, I'm, I'm writing for *Actor Cthulhu, which, as some of you might know, is fairly meticulous in its research, and I want to try and keep keep that going. But it's just six weeks, and I've been I've got five or six different reference books. Uh, different things that we've all talked about that, uh, as particular books we want to read. I've even bought a rough guide to the Ardennes because surprisingly that tells you a little bit about the history of the area, but it, but it tells you more about what folk eat. For example, French fries. It's a Belgian invention, not a French invention. And that's just one of the things I've picked up and local delicacies and things like that. But research is important. To a certain extent, it gives you a little bit of local flavor as well. Um, if it's a fantasy game or something like that, of course, you can fudge it slightly. Yeah, the sword's slightly balanced and made of a different metal or whatever. I mean, that's... You're not really dealing with real-world science or whatever. Fireballs explode, yeah. Uh, you're yeah, using magic. For for whatever purpose you're using magic, it can gloss over those, shall we say. Or any any uh, what's it, sufficiently advanced technologies is, is indistinct for magic or whatever. So, you can get away with it. You can either MacGuffin, the technology, is a, or just something similar, I think. But research is important if you're dealing with anything that's got basis in history, I think, definitely.
3: And if a co-worker happens to do a whole bunch of research for you, cheat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Excellent.
0: Any more questions? Yeah, i um, trying to take off direction, but there... Um, I find... The best games are ones where the rules really say the game, that they respect what the authors are trying to do in the game. How important is it for you guys that when you are writing for
5: games that you actually appreciate the rules? And as a kind of a bonus point question,
0: are there any games you wouldn't write for because you love the world but hate rules?
5: I'm going (laughs) to, as a self-publisher, I'm going to pass on this one. (laughs) I'll tell you what, I hate my world and the rules. There we go. (laughs) Um, All
1: right, so so yeah, uh, the rules should ideally play in. They shouldn't be layered on top. They should be webbed in, ideally. Uh, It's something one of my frequent colleagues, Rose Bailey, is a very big proponent of. She publishes a lot of indie games now, and uh, she always makes the rules an integral part of the setting uh, to a seamless degree. Now, it's something we try to do with V5, uh, with Hunger. Hunger replaced Blood Points. Blood Points were a staple of Vampire the Masquerade. You had a pool of blood, it went down, you fed, it went up. But that never created a sense of drama. It's interesting because when Vampire first came out, it it was an interesting mechanic. But by the time Vampire had been out for 25 years the idea of keeping your blood up high had lost any kind of tragedy, any kind of drama. It was just a resource management game. Having hunger as a constant threat, instead of that, your vampire is constantly hungry. As your hunger goes up, you roll more hunger dice, which means you may lose control and need to feed more. Suddenly embeds the theme of hunger, being you're a vampire, and the mechanic of hunger in playing a vampire. So that's a good example, I think, of how a mechanic can part of the game after five revisions <laughs> um, but as far as games go I'm not interested in ever working on anything OSR and I've got a lot of love for playing Tunnels and Trolls uh, as I was starting role playing and sometimes going back to old school D&D But the mechanics for for games like Tunnels and Trolls, games like Rifts, games like Morrow Project, really, um, well, Phoenix Dawn, um, they are so all-encompassing, to my mind anyway, that I just couldn't get on with that. I need to start with the characters first and then kind of the rules need to meet them. I don't want to start with the rules and build the character from that.
2: Yeah, I uh, <coughs> I see rules as guidelines more than rules. So maybe that's why I'm never hired to write write <laughs> rules. Um, but I uh, may I think it's it's a question of culture as well. Because in Scandinavia we are very less as fair when it comes to rules. Uh, we like the uh, the concept Nordic roleplay, and Nordic roleplay is more of a we focus entirely on roleplay and the rules are. Cus- they're kind of there in the background. They, they, we can use them sometimes, and sometimes we choose not to use them. Um, and it depends on, you know, the type of game you're trying to create, the type of storyteller or GM you are. Uh, I don't personally use them that much. Um, I tend to focus entirely on the role play. And then, as I said, uh, as I mentioned, just take the rules that you find important to your game. Take the rules and use them in a way that creates a good role playing experience for everyone. So, you don't have to sit and look through every single page of your book and uh, disturb your role play and your immersion because oh, how was awesome it you did that and what is the uh, what kind of dice you use here? It doesn't really matter because when I when I role play, when I uh, roleplay with my friends it's about roleplay it's not about rules it's about roleplay so I'm a, I'm a little different in that perspective because i know some people love rules and i lo- know they they love to keep up on every single rule and it gives them a good experience but for me personally roleplay is on the forefront and rules are just there to use if you want them
3: hi i'm the other guy <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> i
3: like games to have structured rules uh, I find that when you set out a structured set of rules, not only are you just putting things in text for the sake of it, but you're saying, this is what this game wants to do. It's what it's about. Now, that doesn't mean you need to go and reinvent the wheel every single time you come to a new game. You can take a basic, solid engine block of a rule system and apply it in different ways. If I was taking Conan, yeah, and I was bringing that through 2D20, it would have tons of stuff about how I stab you. Because that's what Conan's about. It talks about ancient worlds and different histories and all of this, but realistically, it's about how I stab you and then how I laugh afterwards. It's (laughs) a game of psychopaths. But if I was to take that same game system and apply it to um, a romantic RPG like uh, Blue Rose, I probably wouldn't have the same (coughs) secondary systems. Like I wouldn't need a weapon list that's an arm long. Yeah, uh, uh, it Romeo and Juliet, just saying. Well, <laughs> yeah, Romeo and Juliet, you got a longsword and a rapier, <laughs> maybe a dagger. <laughs> <laughs> but the rule system itself—how many dice I roll, how I roll dice, what these dice need to do—the basic stuff. You know, I like that to be codified so you teach people once, and they remember it for all the games.
0: Okay, think we've got time for one more question. We've already had one. Go on then. <laughs>
1: Um, well yeah, yeah. Uh, i I use Patreon and um, I, I do all right by it. by no means could it act as a income it's you know it's supplements, but yeah, it gives me a little more freedom to pick and choose rather than constantly having to hustle because when in this industry, if you're a freelancer, you are almost constantly expected to network because you're always looking for the next job if you're doing it full time. Uh, yeah, you live and die by how many assignments you've got, quite frankly. So, Patreon is a great assist in that. Uh, I think it's funny because Kickstarter went through this as well. It, when they first started out, they looked people had this impression of them like they're a bit dirty. They were were a way of milking money out of fans without them actually purchasing something straight away. But giving people the ability to spend money on on supporting a creator they like or pre-ordering a game, if that's what Kickstarter's being used for, or publishing a deluxe version of a game, if that's what people want to spend their money on, then I think they're, they're fantastic tools. Invisible Sun is probably the pinnacle of controversy in terms of how much money are people prepared to spend via Kickstarter on a game. Because Invisible Sun was several hundred dollars for the core game, uh, because you get a hell of a lot of props with it and things like that. And most people were saying a game shouldn't cost that much. Well, the good answer is, well, you don't have to buy it. Um, You don't have to buy a Lamborghini. You can buy... A Ford Fiesta, and that doesn't mean the Ford Fiesta is bad. It just means some people want the Lamborghini, um, and it doesn't mean the Lamborghini is better. It may not be better suited to you. It's just some people want one experience, some people want another.
5: Uh, yes, unsurprisingly, I'm not. I am a big advocate of Kickstarter. I know i have got a number of backers. I can I can see in the room here, but uh, yeah, when we launched our game, we thought we'd get. 400 backers make maybe £8,000, print a game, and that was us done with the midlife crisis, Uh, (laughs) so when we got, we've now made 8,500 copies of the game, Uh, there's no way we would do that without Kickstarter, so I I would highly recommend it if it's something that persuades you to do. Probably going a bit off topic, but I would say just be aware of the difference between being a publisher and a normally it's designer but in this case writer they are very different skill sets i'm i'm not unique but most people don't like running a company and making a game and once they've done it once they usually go i just want to make games because running the company is very different but yeah it can be successful and if you want to ask anything offline just ask
3: i think things like kickstarter and patreon are great for gaming in general uh we do a lot of kickstarter stuff we put out a lot of products that way but a lot of the time when I see someone who's an independent and they've produced something and maybe it's only the first, you know, book, maybe m- maybe it's not even that, maybe it's a page they've done that I think that's really inspiring. I like to go buy them a beer. You know, I like that option. Um, I'm lucky I'm not a freelancer. Um, because I was an evil banker back in the day, I'm actually useful in the commercial sense for Modifius. So... Uh, I'm on board to do financial work as well. So sometimes you can get your dream, which is writing books, but do other stuff too and find an alternate path that's not the freelance road.
0: All Thanks I all the time we got time. Uh, all the time we got time for. Uh, so if you can give all <laughs> our panelists a big round of applause for today. Thank you very much. <laughs> Any last words you guys want to throw in before I let them go?
1: Yeah, I'll Why throw I'll something in. I've, I've always got... Yeah, we can... Let's self-promote. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: so, um, so it actually ties into the mechanics question. Um, they came from Beneath the Sea as a game I uh, conceived of, developed. It's on backer kit right now because the Kickstarter concluded, very successful. Um, and for some reason, it only came to mind after the, we'd finished answering the question. It's a 1950s B-movie sci-fi game that straddles horror and farce. And one of the mechanics in it is cinematics. You have, well, you have cinematics and you have quips. The cinematics are one of the most interesting mechanics I've devised of, if I could say so myself, where you insert movie-style effects... B movie style effects. So you can insert a cheap set. So you can play a cheap set down. So if the uh, terror is too great, you just run straight through the wall. Or you can insert a missing reel. So that if you are about to be devoured by Centipus, the hundred tentacle octopus, and there is no way your characters are going to survive that, you insert a missing reel. Your ca- The game stops. It then starts again. With your characters somewhere completely different, you can never refer to what happened in the missing reel, except in vague (laughs) illusion, because it's gone. Um, Deleted scenes allow you to go back in time and role-play flashbacks and things like that. And so that mechanical conceit for They Came From Beneath the Sea was, um, and what we'll be using in future They Came From games for different movie genres, uh, enables you to use things that are um, perfect for the genre, Uh, They're mechanically fun, which is different because you don't always get fun mechanics in a game. Uh, And and because we're putting them on cards, they're an interactive prop. And that was something we only really thought of late in the development process. Initially, cinematics were written down on everyone's character sheets. But as soon as we started putting them on post-it notes, and they'll be on cards when the game is released, people want to play them because they want to put something down that everyone else can look at. So, yeah, mechanics can be great to build a world to run a game, but they do need to be a fun part of it.
2: I can't beat that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't developed my own game. I just write for other people's games. so I can just I can tell you what I've been writing on recently, and it's a supplement for something called Contagion Chronicle. And it's a part of um, Chronicles of Darkness. So if you like werewolf, if you like mummy, if you like geist, if you like vampire, and you thought, you've, you've been thinking to yourself one day, how can I create a group where it's not just vampires or not just werewolves? What if they work together? That is what I've been working on, a supplement to that game called called Contagion Chronicle. And you are basically working together to fight against this contagion, this illness that's slowly taking over the entire world. And you have to work together as a group. How does a mummy and a vampire and a a hunter or demon work together? Well, that's something you have to figure out. So I'm working on something called Contagious Cities, So it's a supplement to this game, and Contagious Cities is just a supplement where you can think yourself into this contagious idea in Australia, or in Italy, or in Sweden on a little island. So the Contagion takes form in many different ways.
1: And Contagion Chronicle is also available on (laughs) (laughs) All Alright,
0: call it there? I think that's time. All right, folks, thanks very much for coming. Thanks, everyone. See you all later.